Hey friends, and welcome to You Deserve to Love Your Job with me, Arlene Pace Green. My goal is to help you identify and achieve your greatest aspirations and have a lot of fun along the way. I'm so glad you've joined me on this journey. Let's go. I am so excited to let you know that the You Deserve to Love Your Job book is available. It's in paperback and Kindle. I wrote the book for anyone who is looking for more purpose, more meaning, and more joy in your work and life. Filled with examples, quizzes, and experiences from real people, including me, and the book lays out a roadmap to help you clarify your purpose and create an action plan to achieve it. Go get it. It's available on Amazon. What's up, friends, and welcome to this episode. In this episode, you're going to get to hear a conversation I had with one of my dear friends from college, undergraduate and graduate school, Dr. Jennifer Chevins. Jennifer Chevins is a professor of psychology at The Ohio State University and author of a new textbook, The Science and Application of Positive Psychology. Jen completed her undergraduate degree in psychology at James Madison University and her master's degree in experimental psychology from Old Dominion University, which is where we had the chance to meet, become friends, uh, do factor analysis by hand, which is a statistical manipulation, et cetera. During the completion of her doctoral degree in clinical psychology from the University of Kansas, Jen studied ways to increase hope and incorporate hope into psychological interventions. Jen completed her internship, postdoctoral fellowship, and first faculty position at Duke University Medical School. In her current role, she teaches classes, works with undergraduate and graduate students, and studies positive psychology, as well as disorders of emotion dysregulation, including borderline personality disorder. Jen is also the most amazing human being, and this conversation is so insightful and practical. Jen shares a lot from research and studies about positive psychology and what we can learn, and also just share some very practical steps we can all take to live a more hopeful and more meaningful life. So I am thrilled you're here for this episode. Enjoy. Jen, thank you for joining me on this podcast. I know that you are a professor, a researcher. Let's say you run a lab, you're an author, <laughs> along with all your other roles in life. So I really appreciate your time today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I was so intrigued by your, your book. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about positive psychology from a couple of the coaching classes I've taken. But one, I'm impressed you've written a textbook, I guess. Look how thick it is, everyone. <laughs> you do. I wish you written a textbook because I know how long it took me to write a, you know, a hundred, couple hundred very small pages. So a whole textbook is amazing. Thank and you. I thought it was so intriguing, honestly. Like a lot of the topics that you discuss, they're really practical and they're really interesting. So I wanted to have this conversation anyway. And I thought, let's do it on the podcast so everyone yeah. can learn about it um, and everyone can kind of learn together. So thank you for joining and for digging into this topic. And I thought we might start by just like a foundation around what is positive psychology in case someone hasn't heard of it. Okay. Well, well, let me first thank you for having me because you're one of my absolutely favorite people. So I'm so excited to share time with you today. And uh, thanks for the shout out for the book. So positive (laughs) psychology, I've been teaching positive psychology at Ohio State since 2009. So it's really, you know, I think it's getting a lot of attention now, but it's something that has been in the research 
sphere for a couple of decades now. And I'm going to give you a metaphor in terms of like how I think about why positive psychology is important and in, in defining it. So um, Laura King talked about something, use this metaphor where basically if you left a watch in your washing machine, right? So you did mm -hmm. the laundry and there was a watch in it and you came out, you left two watches in there because you're particularly uh, not paying attention at this time. You have two watches and come out and one of them is broken and the other one is still working. Which watch do you want to study and understand to kind of understand how watches work? Mm. And, you know, I think in psychology, we have for a long time, and I think for very good reason said, we need to study the broken watch. We need to understand like what breaks people down and what causes people difficulties and what gets people kind of off their path and, you know, uh, and, and causes suffering. And I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I think that's extraordinarily important. We need to study you know, what kind of causes people problems. But Laura King makes argument, and I agree with her, that you would also want to study the watch that kept working, because what is it about that watch that let it go through the laundry and let it go through the spin cycle and everything else and come out and still be working? And that is basically what positive psychology is. It's studying strengths and studying resilience and studying the people who are kind of like, most able to embody those things and, and trying to learn from them so that the rest of us can, you know, kind of like come out, uh, yeah. you know, so positive psychology covers topics from resilience, as I said, but also forgiveness and gratitude and love and hope and optimism. And so if you want to learn about hope, we can study people who are low in hope and figure out kind of what gets people feeling hopeless, but you can also study really hopeful people and say, They've been going through some of the same stuff we've been going through. How are they maintaining this hope? And can the rest of us learn from that in some way? Mm, that is so interesting because when you were describing the two watches, I was thinking, yeah, I want to study the watch that works. But when I think about my own life or people in general, I feel like we focus a lot more on what went wrong and put a lot right. of effort on that and trying to understand that without really giving enough attention to what went right, even in our own lives. Um, right or even with other people, we, we focus so much on what went wrong. Yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think and it's it often different. for good. I think it's often for good reason. You know, one of the things I ask my students is if you had a friend, if you're studying for finals and you had a friend that called and said, I really, I'm having a rough time. I really need you. How many of you would drop what you were doing and study and go be there for that person? And almost all of them say they would. And then I say, what if that, what if a friend called you and said, you're studying for finals again? And they said, something amazing just happened to me. I really need you. I want to celebrate this. How many of you would drop what you were doing and go be there for them in that moment? And the number of people who would do that just like drastically drops, right? You know, people are like, they'll still be happy about that in two days when my finals are done. <laughs> you know? So um, I think like it's for good reason, right? We don't want people to be suffering, but one of the ways I think to help alleviate suffering is to help people capitalize on their strengths and when good things happen. Mm -hmm. That makes complete sense because you're right. If there's a problem, you feel compelled. But when someone's really happy, you're like, ah, oh, she'll be good. <laughs> She's all right for a couple of days. <laughs> right, exactly. You can celebrate on her own. <laughs> you know, sometimes we do that in life too. Like I think, you know, someone passes away or there's, something really difficult. And then we say, you know, everyone shows up for the service, but, you know, someone is celebrating finishing, you know, a graduate program or finishing right. school or something like that. And then 
do we always show up for those things, which actually are also super meaningful? Right. Uh, I don't know. We probably challenge ourselves to think, are we showing up for both really for people that we care about? Right. Yeah. So what led you into positive psychology? So you said you've been studying it since, did you say 2009 or 2008? I've been teaching it since 2009. I've been studying studying it since the mid nineties. So um, I went to grad school at the University of Kansas and one of the professors there, his name was Rick Snyder. He's passed away since, which was a big loss to the field, but he was the person who originated the psychological and quantitative study of hope. And he was my research mentor. So I went to grad school, you know, wanting to learn how to treat depression and anxiety and personality disorders, which I had the opportunity to do all those things and did those things. And I hadn't really thought about positive psychology at all, or really constructs that were protective or strengths. Mm -hmm. And um, just, you know, had the great honor and pleasure to work with him And so I spent my grad school years studying what hope is and how it protects us. And then my particular interest in it was, can we increase it for people who have low hope? Mm -hmm. So I spent my, uh, much of my work thinking about, are there ways to boost hope for people who are a little bit lower in hope? Okay. And are there ways? There are ways. There are ways. Yeah. There are ways. The way we study hope, the way we define hope, we think of it as um, basically your orientation towards your goals. Mm -hmm. And so hope is having well-defined or well-specified goals. And then the belief that you can think of ways to get there. Mm -hmm. And then also the belief that you could use those ways. So one of the examples I give is if I wanted to have a date this uh, Saturday night, I'm still single for any of your listeners. Uh, (laughs) And an amazing catch, by the way, shall we say that? But we only want the cream of the crop. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh So if I wanted to find a date for Saturday night, I might think like, how are all the ways I could find a date? Maybe I would go on, um, you know, a a service to look, you know, an app to look for that. Maybe I'd ask someone to set me up. Maybe I would go back to people I dated before and see if anybody wanted to do something this Saturday. And maybe I would stand outside on the street with like one of those sandwich boards that say like, I need a date. Those are all reasonable. That I'm not going to allow. <laughs> You're not going to allow that. Those are all reasonable pathways to that goal, but I probably have low agency for the sandwich board. So I had like, so that would be a low hope kind of like response to that, because even if something I can think of to do, if I wouldn't do it, then it's not a hopeful route. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. That, I think that's important to know just that it can change. Cause I think and there, one of the things you talk about in the book, you and your co-author, David Feldman, talk about in the book is, you know, just this idea of myths about positive psychology. Right. And I think one of the myths I hear, I don't know if this is research-based or not, is kind of, it is what it is. Like maybe some people are very optimistic people. Right. Some people are very pessimistic people. And it's kind of who you are a little right. bit and it doesn't change. I don't know if that's a myth or a fact, but I'd be curious about that. And then any other myths that you hear commonly about positive psychology? Yeah. I think that the myths stick around because there's some truth to them. So even what you just said, when we think about how optimistic or how grateful or how forgiving someone is, there is data to suggest that, um, that part of that is, is inherited. It's heritable, right? So we get this like people uh, look like people that they are genetically close to in terms of the the variability in those different traits. So 
But really, the estimates suggest maybe somewhere between 40 to 55% of that is heritable. And so, and even things that are heritable, it doesn't mean that it's not changeable, hmm. right? So also like weight is also heritable. Like we wouldn't think you can't change your weight, right? Like, or that it doesn't change over time or in response to various things. So same with intelligence that, that that's heritable, but we know that there are things that impact people's intelligence over the course of their life and in and, and various kinds of like socio demographic factors that, yeah. you know, uh, in, impact us in those ways. So it is partly heritable. So I get that's where it's the kind of like, it, it is what it is. You are who you are. And also there is a lot of room there to do things to uh, end up at one end or the other of your range, your own personal range. Mm, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Because I, yeah. I think I'm a pretty hopeful person. Like I always feel like, oh, you can do it or I can do it. Right. Um, but I know for other people, it's harder to get there in terms of the belief. Um, but it's good to know that we can, you can change it if you desire yes. to. Um, yes, it would, it would require some work. But it requires some work. Yeah, it would require some work. Uh, just like anything else that we want to change about ourselves. Just like anything else. <laughs> As my nutritionist has been telling me. <laughs> I was just, I was thinking of my strength coach, right? As my strength coach has been telling me, like, you have to actually do things. <laughs> right, for it to work. Yes, that that makes so much sense, actually. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, another couple myths. I think a couple of these are talked about in the book that I was reading what? about is about positive psychology being for privileged, like, and it kind of relates to even the book. I I feel like I hear this from people sometimes, like, you know, the idea of loving your work or loving your job feel can feel like a privileged idea that is for certain people. And so positive psychology, this idea of living a, I won't call it living a happy life because that's probably not fair, but thinking about the strengths of life and what brings you joy and hope and gratitude. Maybe that's only for people that are a certain economic status or- educational status or things like that. That seemed like another kind of idea you all discussed in the book. What's your perspective on that? Yeah. Again, I think that's another place where those myths where like, there probably is some truth to that in terms Mm -hmm. of um, we do know that people who are uh, at lower socioeconomic status or have lower incomes, that their subjective well-being tends to be lower than people who have higher annual incomes there is a threshold for that. So once you kind of cross a threshold in terms of your annual income, then more doesn't predict being happier, right? It's kind of, yeah. you, need, uh-huh. it's, uh, you need to have your basic needs be able to be met and feel like you're secure and that mm-hmm. things are. So there is some truth to that, right? That's a privilege to be at a space where you feel like, okay, I can provide for all of these basic needs for me and my family. Yeah. And um, I've got a little security, so I'm not going to lose this all tomorrow. That being said, again, we all have ranges. And so even um, someone who is not in a privileged class or is a lower SES or um, struggling in some way, there's still a range of how forgiving or grateful they might be at any time. So kind of doing things to move up to that, that range. There's also evidence that sometimes under high times of stress, people's strengths like really come to them in a way that's really Hmm. useful. So if you think of positive psychology, if you don't think of it as just happiness, right. But if you think about it as like your ability to use your strengths to do what you can do for yourself, you know, when we study intro psychology, we teach students about 
things about how terrible humans are, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what is one of the things we teach? The Milgram like, studies. Yeah. Yes, the Milgram studies is exactly right. So when authority tells you to do something terrible, then you are more likely to do that terrible thing. But what we don't talk about is a, about a third of the participants in those studies say, no, I'm not going to do that, right? And so there's still something, even when you're in conditions that might predispose people to act badly or to not you know, kind of like lean on their strengths, there's still a group of people who are doing that. And um, it doesn't correlate perfectly with being privileged. That relates so much to what I've been thinking about even the last week. So this last weekend, we had a, our church had a leadership team meeting and we were talking about stress management as you talk about in times of stress or difficult times. And we listened to a story from someone talking about how you know, during a really bad sickness, like a stage four cancer sickness for someone in their family, how they felt like they were at their best at that moment. Like they really leaned on their faith. They encouraged each other so much. Like it was such a, in an odd way, he said it's odd to say, it was like a really positive experience for them as a family, as a coming together. So I can see what you're saying. Like, it's not just your situation because even difficult situations can kind of push you to operate in strengths that maybe you hadn't had used, or maybe you didn't even know you had, it sounds like. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I could see yeah. that for sure. Even as a stress management, you know, difficult times can, there's still, you can sometimes still find joy, purpose, all those kind of things, even in difficult situations. Absolutely. Well, just like you were saying earlier, when someone passes away and, and we have, um, you know, services, funeral services, and people come together, that's obviously a very sad time. And they're in those services. Often there are pockets or moments of joy and connection and love. And, you know, those are, so as long as you kind of strip that positive psychology means being happy all the time, which it absolutely does not mean, mm-hmm. then it makes room for, some of those um, strengths that are related to meaning, which really can come in times of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes complete sense. I love that, I love yeah. that. So let me ask you this, how do you feel like positive psychology could apply to, I was thinking about this because you're a professor and you're a researcher on this topic, but you also spend a lot of time with college students who yes. are you know, considering their career and career options, along with just the other adults you spend time with fellow professors, like, how do you feel like positive psychology can apply to your career or finding your purpose work? Like, how do you think it applies in the space of work? We have a chapter in the book on work and kind of work environments. And I think that one of the things that can really help you do is find out, maybe not even find out, but take a minute to think about your values and make sure that the thing you're committing yourself to for a big chunk of your life, which is your work, fits with your values, right? And so some people value achievement and that, you know, finding ways that your that your work um, can kind of serve that value. Some people value connection and harmony and like, are there ways and careers that really would highlight that strength for you or that value for you? you know, other people really value independence and autonomy. I always say that's the only thing that all college professors have in common with each other (laughs) is that they don't like being told what to do by anyone. So, you know, like finding a way to have that be part of your work. I think thinking about your values when you're making those big decisions, we often think about our values when we're making decisions about people. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to partner with someone, you know, do do I share values with that person? Would we want to raise children together in the same way? But maybe we don't think about that enough when we're thinking about our work. And then the other piece, you said purpose. And I think that's a really important part 
of um, positive psychology and work, that kind of intersection between those two things in that any work you're doing has meaning and purpose in it. If you're able to kind of identify that and tap into that. So they've, people have done studies looking at how people describe their work. And if people describe it in ways that uh, suggest it has meaning and purpose, they tend to be much happier with it. And that's compared to people doing the exact same job with the exact same supervisors in the exact same organization. Interesting. You know, I had that experience one time I was uh, talking to a friend of mine at work and I was really frustrated with work at the time and was seeing it more as a chore. And like, I talked to her about it. I was like, oh my God, how are you doing? And she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> like, she was like, I get to pour into people. And I mean, and I remember thinking, are like, are we working the same job? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? But to your point, I think she had found meaning and purpose in what she was doing at the time. I really hadn't. And we had really different experiences, you know? Um, so yeah. Right. Like, right. Some of the yeah, they, when they've done these studies, um, one group of people they did the studies with were people who were doing custodial services at a hospital. And when they asked some people, what do they do? What, what do you do in your job? They would say, you know, I clean up, I empty the waste baskets, I mop the floors. And other people would say, like, I make the room safe for people who are here. And I make sure that, like, when people's families are here, that they're in a space that kind of allows them to be together. You know, it's just a really different way of thinking about the exact same behaviors or things that yeah. you're doing. Oh, that's interesting. And that, you know, I can see even as a, a manager or leader or employer, like that's why, that's one of the reasons why connecting your work to what the real purpose of it is so important because maybe someone can't always see it. You know, sometimes based on the work you do, you may do a part of it, but may not see it actually at its conclusion. And so making that connection could help people find the purpose in the work if they're not sure what it is. I agree. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. I think the other thing about work and positive psychology where there's a big intersection is one of the take-home messages in positive psychology is other people matter. So in any way you slice it, people um, are happier, psychologically healthier, physically healthier, uh, do better in work if they feel well connected to other people. And so I think sometimes we think about work as, as not our real life. Right. Like I have my work and oh, then I yeah. have my real life outside of that. And then I do these things. And so we may not put as much attention into kind of connecting to people in our workspaces as we might in other spaces that we're in. And I think that's probably a mistake that some of us make. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question for you then. I was okay. reading on um, LinkedIn the other day about someone had made a comment about loving their work and et cetera, et cetera. And there, I was reading the comments in response to that. And one theme I saw from a couple people is that, you know, they don't expect to love their work. They really go to work for, let's say, financial reasons. And then I feel like I've, I've met several people who feel this way and they take the financial or the resources they get from work and they might apply it to things they love, like their family or, you know, whatever else they want, they want to do, but they don't really look to work they don't look to work to be that central in their life almost. I don't know. So what would be your thoughts or response to that? I think that totally makes sense for people. So I I mean, I'm sure you know this better than I do, um, you know, based on your experiences and what you've done, but in the positive psychology literature, they talk about having, you know, a job, a career or a calling, and we're not all going to have a calling. We're not all going to think of our work as a place where our most authentic selves 
can be um, and where we kind of like fill up our bucket, right? Our whatever that bucket is, meaning or accomplishment or whatever that is. So I don't think that that's necessary for all people. That being said, most of us have to work. And so having work be as good as it can be while you are there, you know, there might be a couple of things you could do, like connecting with other people and, you know, kind of trying to figure out what is the meaning of my work? How am I contributing or whatever is important to you? Maybe contributing isn't important to you, but whatever values that has tying that to your values might make work more pleasant while you're there because nothing is pleasant if you're just gritting your teeth through it. And especially if you're doing that 40 hours a week. I know. I, when I read those, <laughs> when I read those comments, honestly, it made me so sad. I was like, I feel like maybe they've never had a work experience where they found purpose and meaning or joy, you know, in that work right. experience. Cause I feel like once you have it, you want it, you know, but maybe if you've never had it, then right. you don't think you need it. Right. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that's a lot of time to spend at something to kind of just kind of write it off to a certain extent and just say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't need to enjoy that. I was like, oh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. That's how I feel about it. I feel, you know, I definitely hear people say you shouldn't love your work because your work won't love you back. And I yes. think that that, you know, that uh, probably a depends on what you're doing and wh- whom you're doing it with, and you know, <laughs> who who are the people that have the opportunity to love you back in that space. But I also think there's a big difference between loving something and just like making it through. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not going to be someone who is all the way at, and, and we all should, I mean, not should necessarily, but I really love my work. I know you love your work. I think it's such a, like, and I, you give, I've also read your book. You give some great tips on how we can love our job. And I think that is the most energizing way to spend that time. But even if you can't get all the way there, the kind of like, just grinding is a feel for people. Me too. That's what I think. I, that's what I was feeling when I was reading those comments. I was like, oh my gosh, if you are gritting and grinding to your point through 40 hours of your week, every week, that is a lot of a grind. And, that, and that's going to absolutely affect the rest of your life. Like that's going to affect what you, how you feel and what you do after you get done with those 40. And let's say realistically way more than 40 way more than 40 way more than 40 way way more than 40 honestly so yeah Uh Yeah. not actually not so much in this life but definitely in my past life way more than 40 um so I'm curious about your students so you spend a lot of time with college students I Mm -hmm. have a college student and so I also have lots of friends with college students and just some college students also that I mentor like what do you tell your students about positive psychology, careers, work, like what are some common topics you all are talking about and you kind of hope your students walk away with? Well, I told them to read your book. Okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> I have your book in my office and I say, uh, there are people who know more about this than I do. You should read this book. Yeah. Um, one of the things I tell them to think about is, you know, really trying to find out if they are intrinsically motivated to doing the thing that they're trying to do or if they're trying to do that for some other person or some other, you know, because like it looks good to be X, Y, or Z, or I'm going to make a lot of money if I do X, Y, or Z. My own experience, and I think the research bears out that those things typically don't keep you happy. They might keep you motivated for a while to do it, to get it done, but careers are long. 
you know, we've, we've known each other a long time and we both still have a long time left to go, right? Like careers are long. And so if you're doing this because it's what you're, and I tell them not to tell their parents, I said this, no, <laughs> if you're doing it because your parents think it's the thing to do or because you think it'll make a lot of money or you think it's prestigious, a lot of uh, students will say, I want to be a clinical psychologist. And they say, why? I ask them why. And one of the things they'll say is, I want people to call me doctor. I want to have that title. (laughs) No one's going to call you that. (laughs) That's what's so funny about that. I I would say the times you get actually called doctor as a PhD are pretty small. I I think it's against the uh, policy of the Associated Press. So I'm like, well, that is a terrible reason to go through five, six, seven years of graduate school. Um, You know, it has to be something that you want intrinsically, I think. And I think a lot of times college students haven't even thought about that yet. They've just been thinking about what do I need to do to get into college? What do I need to do to get into this major? What do I need to do to get out of college? And they haven't ask themselves, uh, what do I want to do? What do I think would be important to do? What do I think would be meaningful to do? Mm-hmm. I could totally say that, Jean, because I, you know, I have, I spend some time with college students, but more time with adults who, especially probably most of the people I work with are mid to late career. And I cannot tell you how many people I talk to that say <laughs> that did what you're saying not to do as students and regret it that say, right. I went into whatever finance, you know, IT, engineering, whatever it might be, because my parents, you know, for all the right reasons, I always feel like parents are like trying to, you know, help you find security and all those things that maybe some of them even struggled with. You know, my parent told me to do this, so I did it. And then, you know, 20 years later, they're like, like, I really don't like this. It's hard to have the, to your point, motivation or endurance to continue. Right. And they're really trying to figure out, okay, what might I do differently now? <laughs> like, what can I, how can I pivot this into something I would enjoy? Right. Um, so I think that's your great advice about just intrinsic motivation. That's, that's really good advice. Uh, what would the you other, do? Mm-hmm. The other thing I tell students, which may seem like it's not positive psychology, but I think it is, mm-hmm. is get comfy with failure. Mm. That um, I think that particularly when you're young, some low cost failures can be really illuminating for you and help you understand where your strengths are, how you bounce back from that, how important something is to you. Mm -hmm. So if you fail at something one time and you're done with it, then that wasn't something that was going to sustain you in in terms of a career for a long period, because we all have failure built into what we're doing. Yes. You know, I went through a phase, I'm over it now, but where I was asking people at parties what their favorite failure was. Yeah. <laughs> which is, <laughs> which oh as God. you can imagine, made me quite popular. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, all the rage. <laughs> but I think that it's just something that we have gotten to a point where we think success means a lack of failure. And I really think there's this kind of persistence piece that we're missing out on when we define success in that way. And Mm. I think it keeps people from trying new things, right? So when you pivoted in your career, if you had been afraid of failure, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be where you are now. You wouldn't have written the book. You wouldn't have started your own company. You know, Mm. the people who do things that bring them purpose and meaning in their work have to tolerate the possibility that they're going to have some failure along the way. Honestly, I swear the next party I go to, (laughs) 
not do it. It's so fun. Actually, people love it. You should ask them. It's a, uh, it's, it's a very fun party question. I am absolutely going to ask that. I'm totally asking Kelvin when he gets home. He's like, oh my God. I'm like, Jen told me to. <laughs> and then you say, it can be a moral failure, an academic failure, an athletic failure, anything, you know, interpersonal failure. Mm, I love that. That is so good. Okay. So, um, Jen, we're at the party. Like, what is one failure you would reflect on? What's one failure you reflect on? Well, one of the failures, and this is why I need to work on my phrasing, because it's not my favorite failure, but one of the okay. failures I feel like I learned the most from was when I was in eighth grade and there mm-hmm. was a, a young a man, a, a boy in my grade that was being picked on by people. And I did not step in, in the way that I wished I would have later. And it stuck with me the whole rest of my life. And so now every time I have an opportunity to do better in that way, I do. And I just really like try to think of it as like repairing with the universe for not being my eighth grade self, not quite having the like moral fortitude that I wished I had had. Oh, I love that. And I could totally see that because you really are an advocate for people. Like you're an advocate for other people. Yeah, you're willing to stand up for other people, speak for other people who maybe don't have a voice. So I can absolutely see how that shows up in your life. And I get totally what you're saying. It's almost like if you're holding on too tight to wanting to win and succeed all the time, there's a lot of things you won't reach for because you're just right holding on so tight to you know what right. what you need to be right. And in my job, I have so many failures. There is they're not even interesting because I submit papers that get rejected or yeah. grants that get rejected or Um, I try to master some new, you know, statistical procedure that I fail many times before I'm able to get that done. So I have lots of failures. It's just Mm -hmm. many of them are not particularly interesting because they happen so frequently. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yes, me too. And you're right. You kind of get, I guess they don't, they don't sting as much. Maybe I don't know if that's true, but you kind of get to the right, you know, kind of the realization that, yeah, on your way to doing something well, there's going to be there's going to be failures along the way that pivot you one way or the other right. or teach you different things. So I think you're right. After you kind of get comfortable with it, then they almost just don't even hurt as much. That's right. <laughs> Cause That's you're right. just kind of like, hmm, you realize it's more of a part of a life. So. It's part of the process, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. I love that. I'm, I'm totally asking this question. I can't wait to find out, find out from people. So, um, okay. Last big question. I want to do lightning round with you okay. and then hear any closing thoughts you have, of course, but So that's one way. Are there other ways that you've applied positive psychology to your life or you would encourage people to apply it to theirs work or other just kind of like what would be your reflection on that after these um, the research that you've done? I mean, there's a few ways and I'll do them relatively briefly. But one of the things I do is because I studied hope, I do a lot of um, goal mapping, which is just a very simple strategy where I'll say kind of like you are here, you want to get here. And then I just draw paths to connect those things. Hmm. And then I try to anticipate obstacles on each of those paths. So if I say, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I want to get healthier is my ultimate goal. And one pathway is I'm going to, you know, walk three or four times a week. I write that down, but now I know myself well enough to know that's not going to just do it right. Just because I know what to do doesn't mean it's going to happen. So then on the path, I'll write across it an obstacle, like it'll rain. And so then I would like think of another path around that obstacle. So I just try to draw these little maps to actually get me to my goals. And that I do pretty regularly, just, you know, quick 
you know, a quick kind of uh, mapping out of those goals. I also try to really harness my positive emotions. So I believe, and, and again, I think the research bears this out, that people do their best work when they are experiencing positive emotions, mm-hmm. whether that's curiosity or happiness or love or, you know, um, mm-hmm. even just contentment that we do our best work in those, in those ways. So I try to build in like some positive affect boosts before I'm going to do things that require creative thinking or energy, or, you know, that might be eating a couple of, um, you know, pretzel M&Ms that might be watching a dog video on YouTube or, you know, snuggling with my own dog, doing something to kind of like boost that positive affect before I'm going to do something hard or irritating at work. Mm. Um, and then I try to express a lot of gratitude. Yeah. You know, I just try to really like, acknowledge that I am where I am in part because of my relationships with other people and how other people have kind of contributed to the things that go well in my life. And I try to stay open to that, right? Like there, there can be times where you want to feel like, no, I got myself here. (laughs) I try to acknowledge other people's roles in like big and little wins that I have, you know, kind of across my career. That is amazing. Those are so practical too. Like I'm, first of all, I'm already goal mapping something in my mind. (laughs) I'm like, I love that idea of drawing it out. And to your point, thinking through the obstacles, but I really like the visual part of that, um, which I've not done before. So I I love that. And these positive mood boosts, like, yeah, your mood absolutely affects your work and how creative you are and how, you know, how much endurance you put into it, what you, what your real output is, and certainly the way you interact with others. So yeah, if you know, you have to do something you don't like, yeah, like proposals, I really don't like creating proposals. So I need to figure out what can I do before I do those right. and kind of get yourself in a more positive mood. Um, right. Sometimes I'll do a walk or something, but yeah, I love that. That is, um, that makes a lot of sense and just gratitude for other people. And it can be really easy to kind of get into a prideful place thinking that, <laughs> I'm pretty amazing. <laughs> like I, I, I work really hard on this. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but to get in a real thoughtful place, a probably realistic place, a place of gratitude on kind of how really other people and circumstances contributed to what we are blessed to have and experience. Um, right. Yeah. Makes me and want to study positive psychology more. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Come, come to class anytime. And I just, I want to say about gratitude because there are some cultural differences in how people experience gratitude. And so in my mind, when I experience gratitude, it does not take away from any of the personal things that I've done. So I can think that I'm pretty amazing and I worked really hard and also I'm thankful for other people. Mm. Some people, when they experience gratitude, and I think there's some cultural norms around this that might be different, particularly in more collectivistic and and more harmonious cultures that feeling gratitude is sometimes accompanied by feeling indebted. And so that's not my experience of gratitude, but if that was someone else's experience of gratitude, I probably wouldn't do a lot of adding that into my work day. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You can have both. You can both really think, be proud of what you did. And at the same time, be really grateful for whoever might've helped you to get there. Yes. they don't have to compete. It doesn't have to be one or the other. They can coexist essentially. Yes. Yes. I maintain a very high positive illusion. So I can do that in the face of gratitude. It should be honestly, as it should be. Um, yes. Cause you're amazing. So as it should okay. be, I love that. Yes. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to take away. 
So, okay, great. So thank you for all of this. This is super helpful and very practical, honestly, on what we can do just to lean into our strengths and hope and joy. And just even asking that question of yourself, like instead of always asking what went wrong, you know, but what went right in your life and what contributed to some of the success you've had. I think, you know, I asked that with some of my coaching clients can really contribute to all those different sets of learnings. Cause sometimes what caused something to go wrong or what caused something to go right. It's not like they're the opposites. They can literally right. do different things. Is that true in the research as well? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's a, that's a great practice to have. And so let me ask you this. So these are just lightning round questions okay. designed to help everyone get to know you better in general. So okay. um, the first question is what is the most unique job you've had? When I was 15 and 16 uh, in, years old, I cut fabric at Michael's which was like a Joanne's fabric. Oh yeah. I was, yeah. I was the fabric cutter. Okay. Did you enjoy that? Was this I loved like it. A, I, loved you, it. I, could, I did. I got really, the table has a little groove in it that you just put the scissors right through. And yeah, I loved it. I could see that. I like crafting in general. I don't do a lot of it, but when I do I always feel like it brings me some kind of a, a level of peace and comfort to it. So, right. Yes. Okay. Next question. And you answered one of these, but um, I'll ask you again, in case there's another one. What is one thing you do consistently to enjoy your life? I mean, I try to, um, I live in Ohio. I moved here for a job, so I didn't know anybody when I moved to Ohio. And so I really try to build in lots of time with my people. So I travel to see my family. I travel to see my friends. I travel with my friends. So just, you know, kind of making time to maintain relationships. You and I are both, um, I was an Air Force brat. So, you know, really taking time to make sure I stay connected to people from all different parts of my life. Mm -hmm, Yeah. And it's interesting how it does take some effort, but it's really possible even long distance. Like, I don't know if I realized, you know, just how connected you can continue to stay to people, even across pretty significant distances, um, if you're intentional about it. So, Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what is one career life could be school hack you've learned. So it's like a, a trick or a tip on anything, would you say? Yeah, I, I, that one is a little harder because um, I just, I think, uh, what do I do to make my life easier? I can think of lots of ways I make it harder. Um, I think one for me, and this is probably pretty personal, but I try to write in the morning. So part of my job is writing and you know, one of the hacks that I have found is that it has to come first or it just doesn't get done. And also I think best in the morning. Um, so that's part of the hack is just making my schedule so that my meetings and things that not that they're less important, but they require a different kind of thinking happen later in the afternoon when I'm starting to wane a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So putting at the best time for you, best time of day for you. The best time for me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So this one I'm really interested in. You see a lot of our college students. Um, what piece of advice would you give to parents of, of college students? Yeah. Whenever someone asks me what, kind of, what a piece of advice I give to people, my piece of advice is usually don't listen to advice from other people. Like <laughs> Make your own way. Um, but I think that one of the things, it goes back to my um, you know strong interest in failure. I think that one piece of advice I would give is to let your children, your students have low cost age appropriate failures, Hmm. you know, kind of like throughout, like, I think sometimes we think we're saving them from some pain by stepping in. And sometimes we have to step in because sometimes they need adults to step in for them. 
Yeah. But if it's a low cost failure, like letting that stand and letting them kind of feel that and recognize it's not the end of the world. I think they get afraid that it will be the end of the world and they don't have any experience to suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I can see how that can contribute to resilience and to your point, so important early in life when you as a parent at least can know that's not going to hurt them that much. You know what I mean? Like your point, it's a low cost failure. It's not like, you know, maybe some of the costs that we pay later on in life. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Last thing is what's one piece of wisdom or piece of advice you live by? Well, one of them you said is don't take advice from other people. (laughs) Is that, is that it? (laughs) No, I do take advice. I just, uh, I, I worry about it sometimes, you know, it's, it's something that lots of people have said lots of times, but that you won't get things you don't try for. Mm. Um, and there's lots of different ways to say that. When I was at my previous job, we used to say, um, you know, you have to emit behavior in order for it to be reinforced, which is the geeky academic way to say, like, you miss every shot you don't take, but you have to, you you can't get what you want unless you're willing to try. Try anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which connects to your point about failure too. Right. Like you have to be comfortable with that too, but um, try anyway. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. So, Dr. Jen Chevin. So, wait a minute. This dog, whose idea was it on this book to have? This I mean, can you adorable... believe that dog? We call it Boop. I don't know what its actual name is. Um, <laughs> it was David Feldman and I. We went to grad school together. Uh, we really wanted something fun, and so we just, you know, said like, can we have something like a dog? And then our editor found that picture and we were like, that's it. This is it. I love it. The science and application of positive psychology, Jennifer Chevins, David Feldman, congratulations on the thank book. You. And um, thank you so much for joining. Thank I you appreciate for having me. you. It was yes. a real pleasure. Thank you friends for joining. I hope you love the podcast and thank you, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Be well, everyone. If you love this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You're also invited to join my private email group where I share tips, resources, freebies, and ideas to help you love your job and grow your business. Click join the crew in the show notes.